Hello and welcome to this special festive edition of Nudge. Over the last seven months, I've been lucky to talk to some of the leading pioneers in consumer psychology. They've shared books, studies and research that has helped us understand the weird and wonderful ways our brains work. For this episode, I've looked back at all of the previous shows and picked my favourite eight nudges. These are nudges that I think every marketer needs to know in 2020. Before I start, I'd like to say a massive thank you to everybody who has listened to the show this year. Many of you have got in touch to share positive feedback and I genuinely really appreciate it. If you haven't already, please sign up to the mailing list, the link to which is in the show notes. I'll send you an email every time a new episode goes live. And if you're feeling in a giving mood over the festive period, please leave me a review of the show on Apple Podcast. It really does help. I'll start with a classic nudge, the anchoring effect. In one of the first episodes on the podcast, Steve Martin, best-selling consumer psychology author, explained how the anchoring effect increases sales, makes prices seem more appealing, and changes the likelihood of getting a job. So, for example, let's, let's think for a few moments about recruitment, for example. One of the things that we know about this anchoring effect, or, or more broadly in psychology, this contrast phenomenon, is how we perceive an offer or a recommendation will often be a function of what we are exposed to immediately before. So a, a £15 bottle of wine appears better value if we see a £25 bottle of wine first. Um, but if we're offered a £10 bottle of wine first, then we see the £15 bottle of wine, it, it seems a little bit more expensive. But what's interesting is that that target product there, the £15 bottle of wine, doesn't change it's just what we're exposed to first. So there's, a, there's an example of a contrast or an anchoring effect. One of the things I've been interested in is how this plays out in recruitment. You know, so imagine you're in a situation where you are either applying for a job or perhaps you're an agency that is uh, in a competitive pitch for a piece of work uh, with a potential client. Um, does it matter when in the process or where in the order of those pitches your organization or you as an individual represents yourself. And, and it turns out that all other things being equal, it matters quite a lot. Going first, particularly in those situations where there's multiple options or candidates, let's say, for example, you're an agency and you know, there's five other agencies, including yourselves pitching, you know, going first actually puts you at a slight disadvantage. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that there is a comparison there is an anchor there um, but the anchor is largely an imagined one you know the organization concerned have got this theory or this idea of the ideal agency to work with and that's kind of if you go first that's what you're being compared to some agency nirvana um, which never exists the second disadvantage of course is that uh, if you do perform first you are often disadvantaged by being scored lower. You know, if there's some sort of scoring system, you know how they do these things sometimes, Phil, where they assign certain points to agencies or candidates and then they, the, the, the candidate or the agency with the biggest total gets the job or gets the work. If you go first, judges tend to be a little harsher at the beginning of the process, primarily because they're thinking, well, if a better candidate or a better agency comes along, I want to give myself a little bit of room to be able to score slightly higher. So for, for a couple of reasons... Uh, sometimes this anchoring or this contrast effect can work against you. So the advice here is that, you know, in situations where you're in some sort of performance to win a job or a, a piece of work, 
you're probably better off going towards the end rather than at the beginning in these kind of competitive pitch situations. In the 1930s, just 10% of wedding rings purchased were made of diamond. De Beers, a global diamond producer, obviously wanted to change this. So they created an anchor in their advertisements that dramatically influenced consumer behaviour. In their ad message, which started almost 80 years ago, they suggested that a reasonable price for a wedding ring was two months' salary. Now, this was well above the norm, with most people spending about one week's salary. But the anchor had an effect. It encouraged people to spend more and spend enough to afford diamond rings. And by the early 2000s, behaviour had changed dramatically, with 90% of rings bought in the US diamond rings. One of my favourite recent examples of this principle is taken from Steve Jobs' keynote for the iPad back in 2010. Now, many critics were debating how much the iPad should cost before the event. Some estimated that the giant touchscreen should cost as much as $1,000, whilst most agreed that it really shouldn't cost more than $300. Steve Jobs used this high anchor brilliantly. On screen, in the keynote, he showed $1,000 in giant font. He talked at length about how many in the room thought this would be the price and that to get this cutting-edge technology, you'd need to pay a premium. Then he pressed his clicker, and the giant 1000 faded out to reveal the real price of just 499 The crowd responded by whooping and cheering, seeing this price as great value, but only because of that initial anchor. The journalists in the crowd were the same people stating it should cost no more than $300 just days earlier. The anchoring effect made the iPad seem better value and it actually was. The next nudge I love talking about on the show was actually from our first episode. Dr. Adrian North, head of School of Psychology at Curtin University, explained how music could be used to keep people working out for longer. So that's the discrete events model. In terms of my one, what we did was um, we tried to distract people's attention from their internal time. So we did this in a gym, in um, the university gym in um, Leicester in the UK, where I was working at the time. So as people came in, we asked them if they could, you know, we took the clocks down off the wall and we said to the people similarly, can you, can you um, remove your watch, please? So they had no direct way of telling the time while they were in there. But then what we did while we were in there, we played people either kind of stereotypical gym music, which is, you know, kind of some sort of variant of dance music and rock, you know, just typical gym kind of music. But on other occasions, we also played some really unusual music. So we started playing basically greatest hits of country and Western. So it's not very popular stuff, you know, stuff that sold well, but profoundly unusual to hear in a gym. You know, it's not very often you'll hear, I don't know, can we win it, stand by your man while, you know, whilst you're pumping iron. So what we then did as people left, before we gave them their watches back, we first of all said to them, how long do you think you've been in here? And what we found was that the people who'd been exposed to the country music, the really unusual music, you know, their, their estimation of how much time had passed was much more inaccurate than was the estimation of people who had heard the normal music. In other words, the, the unusual music had drawn their attention away, and this is what they told us when we interviewed them afterwards. They said the music really distracted them. They spent a fair amount of time in there thinking, why the blazes is this gym playing country and western? And as a consequence of that, they weren't monitoring the passage of time, and so their time estimate was inaccurate. It's a fascinating finding that's widely ignored. 
Just last week, I spent 30 minutes on hold to my utilities provider, and rather than playing a few long songs to reduce the awareness of the wait, they played dozens of short melodies, making the wait feel unnecessarily long. My next favourite nudge comes from Richard Shotton, author of The Choice Factory, and he recounts one of the most important consumer psychology studies carried out almost 100 years ago by Hedwig von Resteroff. Um, so she was a she was a paediatrician in the University of Berlin, and in 1933 she ran ran an experiment where she gave people long lists of facts. The facts were three items. So they would have let's say A Z Y B X D uh, F U T uh, W A X so on and so forth. And then every so often she would intersperse uh, a string of numbers, one, seven, six. And then she asked people to recall. Uh, so after they've seen this long list of information, after she asked them what bits of information they can recall. And when people are given long strings of letters, interspersed with the occasional number, the number's much more memorable. When they're given long strings of numbers with the occasional letter interspersed, the letters are much more uh, memorable. Again, this is this, so this is called the von Restorff effect. Essentially, we know it's what is distinctive. Again, it is not a um, historic aberration that's no longer true. Colleague and I, um, Laura Weston, this time looked at it in 2016, and this time we gave people 16 numbers, 15 written in black, say one in blue, and people were 30 times more likely to remember the distinctive number. And we did that. At, Again and again, sometimes with num- numbers, sometimes with logos, we kept on finding whatever was distinctive was more likely to be remembered. What's so interesting about this is how many brands fail to benefit from this simple nudge. In fact, most brands do the opposite. They're quick to copy competitors. Gambling firms, for example, sponsor nine of the 20 Premier League shirts this season. Top SaaS products like Intercom, Buffer and Airtable all feature almost identical website designs with the same cartoons. And in my favourite example, luxury watch adverts don't even just look identical with an image of an influencer wearing a watch looking out into the distance. But the watch is even set to the exact same time at 8 minutes past 10. And this isn't just old traditional firms. Apple do the exact same thing with their Apple Watch. And Richard also found that smartphone ads for HTC had the clock set to that exact same time as well, just on the phone. But standing out makes a real difference. To celebrate Pride and raise money for the LGBT charities, Skittles changed their rainbow-coloured packaging and their sweets to black and white. Interestingly, black and white packaging massively stands out in the confectionery aisles where primary colours are used extensively. This distinction, backed with a good cause, meant Skittles sold out regularly, far more than normal, and it hit its three months goal within the first two weeks. A slightly different but still incredible nudge that we spoke about earlier this year was how prices are perceived differently based on how they're written. What we ended up finding, we tested three formats. Um, so dollar sign, um, digits in front of the decimal, and then two digits behind the decimal. Another version was um, menu prices had 
digits in front of the decimal and then a decimal point, nothing behind it. So everything was in round dollars. And then the third format was you literally spell out in words, no Arabic numerals um, on the page. So you don't see numbers um, for prices, but you see written word, um, that, that pricing structure. What was, what was interesting for us was the format that people spent the most money with was without a dollar sign. And we were initially thinking that, hey, maybe it was the text written version because you don't see numbers on there. Maybe all the text would blend into one and you would not think of numbers and pricing because you generally see pricing written out as not, or written in, in numbers. Um, but it, a little further digging kind of revealed that people had an association of written out numbers, especially with, written, uh, with restaurant menus, as belonging to a higher end, more expensive place. And depending on who the customer is, uh, they may feel more on their guard about pricing uh, at a fancier restaurant, at a more high-end restaurant, especially if they're not used to that type of restaurant. Um, the format that had no dollar sign and nothing behind um, the decimal points, um, our, our theory as to why that was more, uh, that encouraged more spending than the version with the dollar sign was that if you see dollar signs all over the place, the idea of spending and the idea of money is constantly being hammered home to you in the back of your mind. You may just see a dollar sign in and think, oh, well, of course it's there because it's a price. But if you see it repeatedly, you're more likely to consciously think of price, uh, more consciously or unconsciously start thinking about price and be a little bit more cautious about it if that's your natural tendency to do so. The difference between the two formats was actually quite striking. So people with the test menus without the dollar sign tended to spend about 6% more on the check um, than those that had dollar signs on there. Sybil Yang, an assistant professor at San Fran University, explained that removing a dollar sign from your price dramatically improved the likeliness to purchase, spending 6% more on average when that dollar sign was removed. Another study found that willingness to purchase also changes based on how the price is graphically presented. Keith Coulter, in the Journal of Consumer Psychology, created two price promotion posters for a pizza cutter. The only difference was how close the regular price was to the sale price in the ads. In one scenario, the prices were graphically displayed next to one another, and in the other, there was a bit of distance between the two prices. Turns out, the perceived price discount increases with physical distance. The further away your sale price is from your regular price, the greater the attractiveness of the discount and thus the higher chance of a sale. The next nudge comes from Nir Eel, author of the best-selling book, Hooked. He explains an old study that revealed that we're more likely to get hooked on an activity if the reward we receive is variable. Yeah, so this comes out of the fascinating work of, of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. And uh, this occurred back in the 1950s, and Skinner took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a disc to peck at. And every time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. 
And at first, Skinner could train these pigeons to pick the disc whenever they were hungry. Okay, so by the way, notice the experiment did not work if the pigeons were not hungry. Why? No internal trigger. Uh, what Skinner discovered was as long as the pigeon had the internal trigger, he could train them to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry uh, by giving them a reward every time they pecked at the disc. Great. That's called operant conditioning. Got it. This is how we train puppies. This is how we train small children. Not too different. But then Skinner ran out of these food pellets. He didn't have enough one day. And so he couldn't afford to give a food pellet to the pigeon every time. He could only give it to the pigeon every once in a while. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc, no reward, no food pellet. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times the pigeon pecked at the disc increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And so this is the exact same mechanic that makes all sorts of things highly engaging. It's what makes gambling interesting. It's what makes a movie fun to watch. It's what makes for a great book, television show, the news, romance. All of these things are fun because of variability. This nudge is mainly used by product designers to keep people hooked on their products. But with a bit of creativity, it can work for marketers too. Neil Patel, a digital marketing guru, added a spinning wheel to his marketing emails. Users could click on the wheel to win a number of different prizes. Now, most of these prizes were useless freebies, for example, a free ebook or a link to his favorite podcast. But some were quite valuable, like a one-hour free SEO consultation. Neil's conversion rate from emails was previously average, with around 0.5% converting. But when he added the spinning wheel, engagement increased dramatically and the conversion rate rose to 3%. Not bad when your email goes out to hundreds of thousands of marketers. It's a really simple yet effective way to boost conversions with variable rewards. Another nudge I loved learning about this year was the endowment effect. It's the idea that we're more likely to complete an activity that has already begun. Here's best-selling author Natalina High explaining how it works with an example about loyalty cards. If you change the way in which someone experiences a task, you can change the behavior. So um, the example there where you have a loyalty card and you hand them out to customers, in group A they have eight stamps that they need to collect in order to get something free, let's say it's a coffee. In the other group, they have 10 stamps they need to collect, but two of the holes already punched in. So essentially, objectively speaking, each group have to collect eight coffees in order to get the the ninth free. Um, Even though objectively they're the same, the people that receive the 10 card stamp with the two punched in feel that they've already undertaken the task. So they feel like they've been given advancement towards completion. So because of that, they're much more likely to continue the task because it's perceived as undertaken and incomplete. So this sense of initial progress is actually known as endowed progress. Because they have that already under their belt, they're much more likely to want to continue. So it can actually increase conversion, it can increase uh, the likelihood that people put in more effort in order to complete that particular task. This nudge can be used to push people through an e-commerce checkout or to get people to sign up for your app. It's a great sales tactic too, in personalized sales emails, implying that you've taken the time to pre-prepare a demo for a potential buyer can increase sales by 5 to 10%. 
Staying on the subject of improving sales, I'll share my next nudge from author Joseph Marks. He shared a fascinating study from his book about how a simple improvement made in the sales strategy of a real estate agent could increase sales by 20%. Essentially, Steve was invited to conduct research in the world of property. You know, he was kind of basing his intervention suggestions on, you know, the idea that people commonly want others to view them as competent. But the problem is that to openly boast about your achievements and skills isn't going to win you any friends. And, you know, there's research showing that there is a way to avoid this self-promotion dilemma, which is to remove the self from the promotion. So, you know, Steve was very kind of inspired by this research from Stanford Business School professor Jeff Pfeffer and his colleagues, which showed that when a messenger's intermediary makes positive comments about them, others no longer regard this as an act of self-promotion, even if the intermediary is not just a disinterested bystander, but has an interest in the messenger's success. Um, So what Steve suggested was that when the receptionist received an incoming call, rather than immediately transferring it to an appropriate colleague, they, they first draw the potential customer's attention to their colleague's competence and then transfer the call. So rather than just say, I'll put you through to Peter, they would say, let me put you through to Peter, our head of sales. He has 20 years of experience selling property in this area. He's certainly the best person to speak to and get advice from. And this had a huge effect. As a result of the intervention, the company registered an almost 20% increase in the number of inquiries that were converted into appointments and a 15% increase in the number of contracts that were subsequently signed. This final nudge is a classic. It's the power of scarcity. The power of scarcity is the idea that we're more likely to want something if it's a scarce resource. It's the reason that events like Black Friday are so compelling. When you put a limit on an offer, it dramatically changes behavior. In the case of Black Friday, that's the end of the day when all deals are removed. In the UK this year, car transactions recorded during Black Friday were 12.5% higher than the same time last year. People spent more than ever before. Yet, the consumer group, which revealed that Black Friday actually isn't a great deal. It looked at 83 different commonly bought consumer goods and monitored the prices before and after Black Friday. Incredibly, only four of those 83 items were actually cheapest on Black Friday. The rest of them all had discounts before and after Black Friday that actually made the item cheaper. Clearly, it isn't the deals that encourages purchases on Black Friday, it's the scarcity principle instead. Here's Richard Shotton explaining the phenomenon. Two elements of this, so, uh, done by Stephen Workshop at the University of, uh, of Virginia, and he gets 134 graduates take part in this experiment, and brings them cookies for them to rate the, the taste of. And he does it in one of three scenarios. So either they have a cookie jar, full cookie jar, so it's got 10 cookies in it, or a cookie jar just with a, a, a couple of cookies in it. And he finds that when people are given the jar where the cookies are in scarce supply, there's just two of them, they're rated as better tasting, worth more, etc. What's really interesting with these the kind of development on the experiment though was in a third version he brings the cookie jar in with just two cookies in and then explains that they've um uh, he had loads more earlier but they've gone because they were very popular 
And in that scenario, you see much bigger effects on the change in attractiveness and willingness to pay. So I think in that scenario, willingness to pay goes up by about 43%. So you see a double effect of not only does scarcity make a product more appealing, if you can overlay that with an explanation uh, for the scarcity, which essentially it's a very popular item, then it becomes even more uh, desirable. According to eMarketer and HBR, 25% of marketing budget is wasted and 80% of new product launches fail. The problem is that most marketing isn't based on science or studies, it's based on gut instinct. Forbes say that 50% of major marketing decisions are made without data, made without science. But it doesn't have to be that way. If we bother to study our consumers and learn why they make the decisions we do, we can start to base the majority of our decisions on rules and laws that actually make our marketing effective. Thank you so much to everybody who has listened to the show this year. If you have feedback or you want to let me know what you think, send me an email at nudgepod at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast this year, please do sign up to the mailing list, the link to which is in the show notes. If you do that, you'll get an email every single time a new podcast goes live. I'll be back next year with even more nudges to help you do your job. And thank you so much for listening to the show this year.